Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Divine Lantern. I'm Alana from the Antiochian Christian Orthodox Youth, and we thank you for tuning in today. With the blessing of His Eminence, Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower, and enrich. This episode, we complete our seven-part series on the ecumenical councils, and today we will be joined by Father Paul, who will give the final talk on the Second Council of Nicaea. We'll also hear a reading from the Lives of the Saints series and answer a question on the faith sent in by one of our listeners. Let's begin, and we hope you enjoy it. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Today, we are presenting the podcast on the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which concludes the series on the Seventh Ecumenical Councils. I would like to extend much gratitude towards His Eminence, Sayyidina Basilios, for granting this opportunity for such a blessed talk on these councils and to all involved. Amen. The Second Ecumenical Council was held in Nicaea in 787 AD. Nicaea was a major city located in Asia Minor, which is in Turkey today. This council was known as the Seventh Ecumenical Council and the last Ecumenical Council of the Holy Orthodox Church. The council was convened by the Empress Irene at the request of Patriarch Thrasios of Constantinople and was attended by 376 bishops plus monks of the Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. The Seventh Council included legates of Pope Adriano and the patriarchs of Alexandria, Antioch and Jerusalem. The Council was called to address the iconoclastic controversy regarding the veneration of holy icons. The iconoclastic controversy had shaken both the Church and the Byzantine Empire, leading to the destruction of many icons, including many martyrs and many persecutions. The civil authorities within the empire had banned the veneration of icons, working to confiscate them, to later destroy them and persecute those who defended them. The iconoclastic controversy unfortunately lasted and continued for 120 years within the church and within the empire. The persecution started in 725 AD with a decree by Emperor Leo III until 741 AD during the reign of his son, Emperor Constantine V. Persecutions led to many martyrs, many exiles and the torture of many people. The second period of the iconoclastic controversy started in 813 AD and ended in 842 AD, ending after the death of Emperor Theophilus, who fought against the veneration of icons. It was under Empress Theodora, the war against the icons, the veneration of icons, had stopped. The iconoclastic controversy around the use of icons was between the iconoclasts and the iconophiles. The iconoclasts were those who believed that many in the church were showing excessive religious respect with regards to church icons, through miracles attributed to icons, believing that they were breaking the first commandment considering the worship of icons as idolatry. The iconoclasts were suspicious also of religious art, 
The iconophiles, on the other hand, were those who believed that icons preserved the doctrinal teachings of the church and were man's way of expressing the teachings of the Holy Church through symbolic art and beauty. The Seventh Ecumenical Council issued 22 canons related to the administrative and disciplinary matters, including the condemning of ordination for payment, the election of bishop by secular powers, and the building of mixed monasteries. However, the main serious issue of concern for the Seventh Ecumenical Council was itself the iconoclastic controversy. The council decreed that icons should be venerated but not worshipped, with Pope Hadrian replying in a letter to his invitation by Empress Irene to extend veneration to icons but not to worship, with worship only befitting God. The Seventh Ecumenical Council decreed the restoration of icons to churches by stating the following. We define that the holy icons, whether in colour, mosaic or some other material, should be exhibited in the holy church of God, on the sacred vessels, liturgical vestments, on the walls, furnishings and in houses, and along the roads, namely the icon of our Lord God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, that of Our Lady the Theotokos, those of the venerable angels and those of all saintly people. Whenever these representations are contemplated, they will cause those who look at them to commemorate and love their prototype. We define also that they should be kissed and that they are an object of veneration and honour, but not of real worship, which is reserved for him who is the subject of our faith and is proper for divine nature. The veneration accorded to an icon is in effect transmitted to the prototype. He who venerates the icon venerated it in the reality for which it stands. This outcome was that we as the church worship Christ and we venerate the saints whom the Theotokos, the mother of God, is at the top of all the saints. The church does not venerate the material of the icon, be it wood, stone or any other material, but only the saint represented on the icon. We venerate what the icon represents. Man cannot draw or paint God because he is inconceivable and unattainable. But as God, who was incarnate in the flesh, Jesus Christ, he became man like us and dwelt amongst us Man then can draw and paint Jesus Christ. St. John of Damascus, a strong defender of orthodoxy, stated, As being begotten from the Father, he is unpaintable, for it is impossible for him to be drawn or painted. Whereas Christ, who was born from a mother, who was a virgin, this makes him paintable, for he can have a picture similar to that of his mother. The Seventh Ecumenical Council, the Second Council of Nicaea, was extremely important to the Holy Orthodox Church in helping to resolve the iconoclastic controversy. A subsequent regional synod was held after the Seventh Ecumenical Council. It was held in Constantinople in 843 AD under the Empress Theodora. With the veneration of icons solemnly declared at St. Sophia's Cathedral, the monks and clergy came in procession and restored the icons to their rightful places. Since that time, this event 
is commemorated in the Holy Orthodox Church as the triumph of orthodoxy and is celebrated every year on the first Sunday of Great Lent as the Sunday of Orthodoxy. On the Sunday of Orthodoxy, the faithful are encouraged to bring their own icons to the celebration of the Divine Liturgy for a blessing on this holy day within the church calendar, promoting and encouraging young children to attend this holy service. The Holy Orthodox Church commemorates the Holy Fathers of the Seventh Ecumenical Council on the Sunday between the 11th and the 18th of October. The Holy Orthodox Church of today could not be seen or cannot be seen or thought of without the beautiful and blessed icons of our Holy Church. Today, many Orthodox faithful in their houses have Orthodox icon spaces and corners as common practice, allowing the believer to contemplate the veneration of the saints and the worship of Christ. Holy Orthodox icons hold much doctrinal symbology for the church faithful, where today icons adorn every Orthodox church, including the walls, the ceilings, the beautiful iconostasis, the altar and the narthex, and all the major church feast days, Orthodox icons of various types are upheld to venerate the particular feast day. In all aspects of Orthodox spiritual life, Holy icons play such a major part in our church, whether it be yesterday, today, and into the future, by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father Paul, for joining us this episode, and to all our clergy members who have taken part in this series. We hope our listeners took a lot of great learnings away. And now for the Philokalia, take your weekly spiritual dose and reflect on the words of our Holy Neptic Fathers with this week's Philokalic Nourishment. Just as when you leave the womb, you no longer remember what pertains to the womb, so when you leave the body, you no longer remember what pertains to the body. St. Anthony the Great The higher a man ascends in humility, the lower he appears in his own eyes. But if he lacks humility, the higher he appears. The humble man does not wish to be compared even with the most lowly and is grieved when he is given first place at the table. St. Elias the Presbyter Truly blessed is the man whose mind and heart are closely attached to the Jesus prayer and to the ceaseless invocation of his name, as air to the body or flame to the wax. The sun rising over the earth creates the daylight, and the venerable and holy name of the Lord Jesus, shining continually in the mind, gives birth to countless intellections radiant as the sun. Saint Hesychius the Priest On October 29th, in the Holy Orthodox Church, we commemorate the venerable martyr Anastasia of Rome. The offshoot of Rome, the martyr Anastasia, endured the off-cutting of her head with courage. On the 29th, Anastasia endured the keen sword. Anastasia was born in Rome of noble parents and was left an orphan at the age of three. She was taken to a convent near Rome to the Abbess Sophia, 
and none of the highest level of perfection. After 17 years, Anastasia was well known among the Christians as a great ascetic and among the pagans as a rare beauty. The pagan governor, Probus, heard of Anastasia and sent his soldiers to bring her to him. For two hours, Abbas Sophia counseled Anastasia how to keep the faith, how to resist flattering deceits, and how to endure torture. Anastasia said to her, My heart is ready to suffer for Christ. My soul is ready to die for my sweet Jesus. Brought before the governor, Anastasia openly expressed her faith in Christ the Lord, and when the governor tried to turn her away from the faith, the martyr said to him, I am ready to die for my Lord not only once, but if it were possible, a hundred times. She was beaten, torn and cut up. Twice she felt a great thirst and asked for water, and a Christian, Cyril, gave her a drink, for which he was blessed by the martyr of Christ and beheaded by the pagans. Anastasia was also beheaded outside the city. Blessed Sophia found her body and buried it honorably in the third century. On this day, we also commemorate Venerable Abraham and his niece Mary of Mesopotamia and new hieromata Athanasios of Sparta. By the intercessions of thy saints, O Christ our God, have mercy upon us. Amen. Why do we have to go to a priest for confession? Simply put, the scriptures clearly illustrate the authority Christ gave his disciples and their successors to forgive sins. 
From the beginning, Christians understood that the grace of ordination endowed the shepherd of the flock with the discernment and compassion to offer guidance and remit confessed sins on behalf of Christ. Christ says to his disciples in the Gospel of John, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And again in the Gospel of Matthew, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Orthodox priests follow this apostolic succession and inherit this same authority bestowed by Christ to his disciples. It cannot be stressed enough that we do not confess directly to the priest. In truth, we are confessing to God in the presence of the priest who, as the prayer before confession states, is God's witness. As the priest witnesses our confession of sins, he will be able to offer pastoral, spiritual and practical advice on how we can better our lives and overcome the very things we confess. Just like we will not attempt to diagnose or cure our own physical ailments without seeking a medical professional's help, so too should we not attempt to diagnose or cure our own spiritual ailments without seeking a priest. We also confess in the presence of the priest to acknowledge that our sins affect not only ourselves, but the entire faithful community. It also reminds us that we cannot heal ourselves. The priest is there to help us overcome those things that we seek forgiveness for, to give advice that our friends might not be able to give. As the priest is the spiritual father of the community of faithful, he serves to bear witness on behalf of this community that we have truly repented and been forgiven by God. It is interesting to note that in the early church, confession was public, meaning that a person would confess their sins in the presence of all the faithful. Christ encouraged his followers to confront problems together, to tell it to the church. St. James, the brother of our Lord, exhorted us to confess our trespasses to one another. We are called to rely on one another on our spiritual journey. When we choose not to confess in the presence of a priest, It can imply that we are able to be our own spiritual physicians, which can lead to pride and egotism. By confessing our sins to God, we not only absolve ourselves of these shortcomings through this holy sacrament, but we also learn humility and to seek spiritually profitable advice from the priest who witnesses our repentance. St. Nectarios highlights the priest's role in representing the church. He says that if the church lacked the power to absolve sins, then she would be incapable of fulfilling her mission, which is communion with God. Christ's final commission to the apostles after his resurrection was that if they forgave or retained the sins of any, then these sins would be forgiven or retained according to the authority of God's ministers. It is Christ who gives this authority to the church through apostolic succession for the forgiveness of sins. Whilst we can confess directly to God, which is the first and necessary step, The process of repentance must be concluded by the command of our Lord who instructed the lepers in the Gospel of Luke to go and show themselves to the priests, who were only then miraculously healed. Confessing to God alone is easy, however confessing to a human being will lead to feelings of shame and guilt which are necessary in our journey towards repentance and putting away our unwanted thoughts and behaviours. For some, sharing their vulnerabilities and seeking forgiveness in front of a priest can be challenging and it may lead to a fear of being judged, but it also holds us accountable. Sacramental confession in the Orthodox Church happens in the presence of a priest, which offers each of us our own unique pathway towards spiritual growth and deification. The priest is there in the spirit of love as a spiritual father who is looking to aid their child on their journey. 
The priest is not there to pass judgment or to criticize us. They are there to offer us guidance and encouragement. Confession is a profound journey of transformation where we embrace our earnest repentance and turn our hearts towards Christ in every aspect of our lives. Let us not neglect this holy sacrament and miss the opportunity to humbly seek God's endless forgiveness and to embark on a journey towards perfection, just as our Heavenly Father is perfect and calls for us to be likewise. The following segment is a reading from the Lives of the Saints, where we'll continue our learnings about the lives of the myrrh-bearing saints. We hope that these synaxarions encourage you to put on the likeness of Christ, as did these vessels of grace. Who is Saint Fortini? Saint Fortini is the woman who is introduced to us by the Gospels. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, we hear of Christ finding rest at Jacob's well. The Gospel reads, A woman of Samaria came to draw water, before an extended dialogue about worship in spirit and truth. This Samaritan woman is recognised by the Orthodox Church as Saint Fortini, meaning the Enlightened One. She is remembered by the Church as a holy martyr and equal to the Apostles. When is she remembered? We remember Saint Fortini twice within the year, on February 26th and on the Sunday of the Samaritan Women, which is the fifth Sunday of Pascha. The fifth Sunday of Pascha is the fourth Sunday after Great and Holy Pascha. How is she a disciple? A disciple is a student in its simplest term. Saint Fortini's conversation with Christ is the longest recorded conversation the Saviour has in the Gospels. After her conversation, she returned to her village of Sychar and led many of the Samaritans there to believe in Christ. Later, she converted her five sisters and two sons and was baptised by the Apostles. All of them became great evangelists for Christ, spreading the message of the Gospels. In following Christ, renouncing her former sinful way of life and preaching him to others, she became a fervent disciple of his. How did she spread Christ's message? After Saints Peter and Paul were martyred, Saint Fortini and her family left their homes to preach the gospel in Carthage, which is in modern-day Tunisia on the north coast of Africa. At that time, Saint Fortini's eldest son Victor was a military commander in the Roman army, while her youngest son Joseph was staying with her in Carthage. Emperor Nero was cruelly persecuting the Christians and called Victor to Italy to arrest and punish the Christians there. One of the officers named Sebastian, who was friendly to Victor in knowing his family's belief in Christ, advised him to inform on any Christians and that his mother and brother should not preach Christ in public. In response, Victor affirmed his desire to be a preacher of Christianity just like his mother, Saint Fortini. Sebastian began to feel a sharp pain in his eyes and became blind, lying there for three days without uttering a word. Three days later, he confessed that the God of the Christians is the only true God and was later baptised with his servants, regaining his sight. On hearing this, Nero commanded that the Christians were brought to him at Rome. The Lord, however, appeared to the Christians and said, Fear not, for I am with you. Nero and all who serve him will be vanquished. 
The Lord said to Victor, from this day forward, your name will be Fortinus, because through you, many will be enlightened and will believe in me. The Lord then told the Christians to strengthen and encourage Sebastian to persevere until the end. The Lord allowed Saint Fortini to see the prior mentioned miracles and revealed to her future events. She left Carthage to join the confessors in Rome. The saints, including Saint Fortini and her two sons and five sisters, and Saint Sebastian, confessed Christ before Emperor Nero in Rome before being subject to cruel tortures. The torturers were given orders to smash the confessor's finger joints, although no pain was felt and their hands remained unharmed. Saint Joseph, Saint Fortinus, and Saint Sebastian were blinded and locked up in prison, while Saint Fortini and her sisters were sent to the imperial court under the supervision of Domnina, Nero's daughter. Saint Fortini converted Domnina to Christianity along with her servants and a sorceress who tried to kill the saint with poisoned food. After three years, it was reported to Nero that the saints he had blinded and imprisoned had fully recovered and that people were also visiting them to hear their preaching. The whole prison was transformed into a place where God was glorified. Nero, upon hearing this, ordered that the saints Joseph, Fortinus and Sebastian be beaten and crucified. An angel of the Lord, however, freed the martyrs from their cross and healed them. Nero became furious and ordered that the saints be tortured. Fortinus and Joseph had skin flayed, their legs cut off and were thrown to the dogs. The sisters Anatola, Volta, Foltus, Padaskeva and Kiriake also suffered terribly, having their skin flayed and breasts cut off. The cruel Nero had sent Fotis tied to the tops of two bent trees that ripped her apart when springing to their original shape. But others were beheaded and Saint Fortini was removed from the well and imprisoned for 20 days. After the imprisonment and the terrible tortures that her family suffered, Saint Fortini was given a chance to relent and offer sacrifice to the idols. Saint Fortini spat in Nero's face while laughing. She said to the enemy of Christians, O most impious of the blind, you profligate and stupid man, do you think me so deluded that I would consent to renounce my Lord Christ and instead offer sacrifice to idols as blind as you? Saint Fortini would soon enter the final contest of her earthly life. She is considered first to preach the gospel after preaching Christ to her townspeople in Sychar, saying, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? John chapter 4 verse 29. How and when did Saint Fortini repose? After witnessing the contest of her sons and sisters, Saint Fortini defied Nero's demand to sacrifice to the idols. Saint Fortini was thrown into a well for the second time where she reposed in the year 66. What prayer do we have to remember Saint Fortini? On the days we remember Saint Fortini, we chant the following Apolitikion. All illumined by the Holy Spirit, Thou did drink with great and ardent longing of the waters Christ Saviour gave unto thee, and with the streams of salvation was thou refreshed, which thou abundantly gave to those athirst. O great martyr and true peer of apostles fourteen, entreat Christ God to grant great mercy unto us.
Thank you again for tuning in to another installment of The Divine Lantern. For all the latest news and updates about our Archdiocese, please visit our website at www.antiochian.org.au. And if you'd like your question on the faith answered throughout the podcast, please shoot it through as a voice memo to tdl at antiochian.org.au. We hope you all have a blessed day and we'll catch you next week.